Well, some exciting things we're going to be getting into tonight, if you could turn with us in your Bible to Revelation chapter 11. You know, as I was studying Revelation chapter 11 this week, uh, it, it really hit me that what we are seeing in this chapter is a fulfillment of a prayer request, maybe one of the most important prayer requests that has ever been made in the history of mankind, but one of the most simple. I mean, in fact, it's so simple, I think we tend to undervalue it a bit. Yeah, it's probably a request that people have said with their lips a hundred times. Maybe at least. At least. Yeah, and, you know? and uh, sometimes uh, I've seen people say it so rapidly and without meaning, they have no idea what they're really saying. Well, what prayer request are we talking about here? Well, pretty much the most important prayer request we could ever pray in uh, the so-called Lord's Prayer. We don't call it that because the Lord never prayed it because it includes confession of sin. But the prayer the Lord gave to us is his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. One of the highlight uh, petitions that is involved there is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is the first thing that comes on the heels of that? Thy kingdom come. Now, what in the world are we praying for when we say something like that? Well, I think this passage that we're going to see tonight in Revelation chapter 11 is going to go a long way towards causing that particular prayer request, hopefully, to pop out in your consciousness, uh, to, to be something that you will never pray quite the same way when you see how God is going to answer it. And, you know, before we even dive in, I think it bears repeating that sometimes I think we pray things and we really don't expect God to answer them. We, we, we pray things and we pray for things and we just kind of do it because we know we're supposed to do it. You know, but Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, ask and it will be given what you ask for. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Jesus laid incredible stress on the power of prayer, and I think if you've ever doubted or ever come into that place of saying, well, you know, I mean, I guess if we've done everything else, we can always pray, hopefully this study tonight is going to reverse all of that. Yeah, and I, I, I too, like you, when I was studying this section, I just bubbled up with so much excitement Yeah. Um, because of that reason. Uh, that reason that God is fulfilling something at this moment when this seventh trumpet sounds. Right. Yeah. There and all if you if you're a Bible reader and you love the Bible and, and you know you read it and it's always anticipating something in the future. That's how the Bible is written. There's a, an issue. There's a problem throughout the Bible. You find that out really quick, right? <laughs> and, and that, and then there's this this stretch of God redeeming and reconciling and drawing close to people. Uh, even the idea of sacrifice means to draw near, to bring near. Yeah. And so, when reading that passage in Revelation, the one we're going to read here in a minute. It, it just was so cool to go, man, this is finally yeah. like going yeah. to happen. Yeah, and, and the other cool thing that I hope that you all get out of this study tonight is that the, the Bible has this remarkable ability to say so much in so few words. 
And, uh, you know, when I was thinking about that, the Lord convicted me a bit uh, about that famous passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, that God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. You know, we don't impress God by the length of our prayers. Uh, what God is really looking for is the heart behind our prayers. And it works the same way in Scripture. Uh, we're going to work our way through five verses tonight. But what a five verses, mm. you know, just uh, powerful stuff. We pick things up in uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. It says, then the seventh angel sounded. Wow, we can just stop right there because we've been in a section of the book of Revelation called the trumpet judgments. Uh, they've been a su successive series of judgments that have been poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. We've seen that it's not only wrath against sin, it's almost God retaking, in a sense, his property, you know, one judgment, one declaration at a time, you know, defeating the powers of darkness, coming against uh, the, 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 the uh, worldly principalities of man that try to raise up control against God. But as we've been working through those trumpet judgments, uh, we got uh, through to uh, Revelation chapter 9, and verse 13, it says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Uh, and then uh, another uh, just incredible judgment is, is taking place. A third of mankind end up being killed. But then there's kind of this hiatus that goes on here. There, there's sort of a pause that happens in the midst of this. We see the fifth angel sounding, the sixth angel sounding, and then we see a mighty angel coming down with his foot on the sea and on the land, uh, declaring that there should be no more delay. Uh, but in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 10, it says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, at this point, we go into a little bit of a parenthesis. Uh, between this declaration that the seventh trumpet is coming, the mystery of God is going to be finished, we see this description, first of all, of the Apostle John acting out uh, this, this same image that we see in the book of Ezekiel, uh, being given a, a little book uh, to eat. It was sweet to his taste, but bitter in his stomach. Uh, the idea that God's message that, yeah, one day it's all going to be okay is great, but boy, there's some pretty heavy-duty stuff that's got to go down first. And then we see uh, the rebuilt temple of God in Jerusalem. We were talking about this on A Reason for Hope today, how a uh, Jewish rabbi uh, had a, an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post, of all things, you know, the headline op-ed that he felt that the way to bring peace to the Middle East, you know, again, Ramadan and Easter and Passover all falling on the same time, just incredible violence going on in Israel right now. In fact, uh, we need to be praying for them because there's rocket attacks going on from Gaza into the southern parts of Israel, and, and things are really heating up. But this rabbi, Rabbi Weitz, uh, said, you know, what we really need is the temple. And the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. And this would be the place where, where people of goodwill, whether they're Muslims, whether they're Christians, whether they're Jews, we can all rally around this one place. And that this would be the answer for all of this. I'm going, whoa, man, that's really heavy duty to see that uh, in the Jerusalem Post. But, but we saw this prophecy that there will be a rebuilt temple. The Antichrist is going to facilitate it. Uh, and he's got some use of it 
for himself. But then we see the, the, the testimony of the two witnesses going on. We see, and we'll just put our cards on the table, Moses and Elijah coming back and, and having this, this powerful ministry. And that starts at the beginning of the tribulation up till the mid-trib, and Sean did a great job of yeah. telling why. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so we see this gracious outreach of God. I, I mean, these guys are so good at what they do, the world hates it, <laughs> which is probably a good indicator for us. If we're doing our job, we're going to catch some flack along the way. Well, they catch some flack, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. They are killed. Yeah. And their bodies are left for dead. Yeah. Three and a half days and, out in Jerusalem. And it's one of those passages, too, that's always a little sci-fi because, you, you know, I'm sure people read this years and years and years ago, and they went like, man, how can the whole world like witness people. Yeah, this has to be symbolic. Yeah, raising from the dead. Like, how can that happen? The Bible must be wrong, because it says that everybody in the world actually sees these people raise yeah. and ascend into heaven. So uh, it's kind of one of those interesting parts of the Bible. Yeah, where the Bible gets ahead of our interpretations, yeah. in a sense, and we kind of catch up to it. So, you know, the two witnesses, you know, after the Antichrist kills them, you know, people have a satanic Xmas, uh, you know, like the Super Bowl will be a secular holiday all across the world. And they'll send presents to one another because these two prophets who tormented them so much, I mean, they stopped rain for three and a half years, for goodness sake, uh, are, are finally out of the way. Uh, but then talk, after talk three about, and a half... Talk about climate change, by the way. Yeah. That's true climate change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> I just and, thought of that. And you know, the, the, the funny thing to me, and, and again, I am a diehard ecologist. I've been a diver and a, a surfer, and I love trail running, and I, I just love the, living in a place like Tucson where you get to see God's creation uh, in such beautiful manifestations. But when you see sort of the, uh, the, the radical environmentalist movement, and them saying, oh, you know, these people are messing up our ecology and so forth. I always have this thought in my mind, you know, I think even this sincere desire to see our world preserved and bettered is going to be twisted and turned around and say, these people, these two prophets, they've ruined the environment. See, they, they, they're, they're the ones that have destroyed the environment and so oh, forth. Yeah. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. <laughs> they chose poorly. Mm -hmm. And they, they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. We saw that same command in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, yep. when the church makes its exit. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, this idea of two woes and one woe left to go uh, goes back to Revelation 14, when there was a great angel flying through mid-heaven saying, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, there was going to be, in a sense, three volleys, if you will, of judgment that have gone on. Uh, you know, we could encapsulate them as being the seal judgments that we've seen. The trumpet judgments now are coming to an end, but there's still going to be yet a judgment that is going to make these pale in comparison. The third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded. Mm. Now, 
notice the culmination of these trumpet judgments. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and the kingdom of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Mm. Now, does something strike you as a little odd about that? It seems like this would be the end of the book of Revelation, right? But we still got a little ways to go. We still do have a little ways to go. And we get these glimpses throughout the book uh, of Revelation of uh, perspective from the earth and then a perspective from heaven. And, and here it says really clearly that there were loud voices in heaven. Right. So we kind of jump from Jerusalem and what's happening there at the Temple Mount uh, into now what's yeah. going on. Meanwhile, in heaven. In heaven. That's yeah. right. right. It's, 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 it's really interesting how that kind of jumps back and forth at times throughout the book. Yeah. But it's good. It's, and I think this is a good balance just for us in, uh, as far as Christian living goes is that, you know, we do have to have our eyes focused in the here and now. Right. And, and that's important. Um, we need to be people that are lovers of people and learn to have compassion on people and not be jaded, you know, so jaded. And it's easy to get jaded nowadays, you know. Uh, but God calls us to something greater, uh, to love humanity. To, to, you know, God so loved the world, and we need to love the world too. Yeah. And we need to love them enough to tell the truth in love, you know, let our, our words be, uh, you know, grace, seasoned with some salt yeah. and, uh, and all that. But we, if you get your eyes too focused in the here and now, then we kind of lose sight of something that we need very desperately to regulate us as Christians. And that is, if, if you get your eyes too focused on the here and now, you kind of, right. you lose hope. Yeah. And you, can, you can fall into despair. Yeah. And, um, and when you're doing that in your life, you need to just kind of go, okay, I, I need to get my perspective back into heaven. Yeah. Because in heaven, things seem pretty cool. You know, like, you know, in that prayer that we opened up with, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And I always ask this question, how is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. Joyfully. Yeah. Right? God's yeah. will's done joyfully. People are serving the Lord with joy. Yeah. They're not burdened yeah. up there. They're not like, oh man, I gotta be before the creator, the infinite God. You know? No, infinity, man. Try to wrap your brain around that. Yeah. God's will's being done so delightfully yeah. in heaven. Yeah. And and so it, it, it to raise us up from a despaired heart, from an overburdened heart, you need to look up. Yeah. And, and so... And, and, and I think maintaining that balance is so essential in the days that we live in right now, because you, you run into people that, you know, with the best intentions of the world, go, man, the Titanic's hit the iceberg as far as this world is concerned. It's going down. We're in this rescue mission, and we want to reach out with God's love, and, and boy, we're going to... And, and then they encounter resistance, and uh, no good deed goes unpunished in this world, and, uh, you know, the old uh, circle the wagons and shoot each other things happen, even their fellow believers start... And, and they, 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 lose, uh, they lose hope. They get too focused in on this world, because it's just easy when you're focused on the, the horizontal to lose hope. You go, well, what difference am I really making? And, and, and how? But if you get too focused in on heaven, you lose God's heart. You know, you, you forget why we are still here. And it's so funny on social media, you will see people either on one side of that 
or the other side of That's it. That's what I was going to say. It's <laughs> like, haven't you guys ever like just got on YouTube and started like listening to all the, the reports on YouTube of what's going on in the world or what's going on with the president or the vice president? And after like a few of them, right, they're kind of addicting. You start watching a few, but after a, a few of them, you're kind of like, man, this is a bummer. And you're just like, man, we are so tweaked. Like, we are so bent. Like, it's like we're so in the pit. Yeah. Like, how can we ever get out? It, it feels that way when you watch the videos. And so some people reacting to that will go, well, you know, this world's going to H-E double hockey sticks in a handbasket, yeah. uh, going to the ultimate weenie roast. I'm kind of glad they're going. So I'm just going to focus in on my relationship with God in heaven. But when I see people do that too much, they are looking at God in heaven, but they don't share his heart for this world. They, they forget that we are still here for a reason. There's only two things we can do better here on earth than we can do in heaven. We'd like to remind you guys of this. And that is sharing God's word with people. Because, again, there's no lost people in heaven. And God's word is the greatest gift. You know, people and God's word, those are the two things that last forever. So we've we got to maintain, in a sense, that balance. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. We see that's things right. getting hot and heavy here on earth. But then it's like the Lord lifts us up and goes, okay, yeah, 7,000 people just died in Jerusalem, this massive earthquake. Things are getting pretty intense. You know, the whole uh, two witnesses, you know, and, and, and who was who was right and who was wrong got, got all settled. And lest people get too overwhelmed, it's like the second woe's passed. Behold, the third woe's coming quickly. In other words, God's going to take care of all of this. He's going to take care of the horizontal. But look what's going on in heaven. The seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, just a little bit of an aside here, but have you ever wondered if you were doing like Bible prophecy right? You know, if you're, you're, you're really doing it the way God wants you to do Bible prophecy, because so many people get off on these jags and hysterias and selling ZDs and, you know, books and, and so on. And it, it almost, for some people, it seems like the, the National Enquirer, the World Weekly News section of, uh, of Scripture, and, uh, you know, you, you see people, well, you know, 90, the problem with most people is 90% of the book of Revelation is already fulfilled. And if they knew that, they'd be like, what? Really? <laughs> wow, the kingdom's come? I didn't realize that. That's, that's, boy, this is the millennial kingdom. I want my money back. But, you know, and people get cynical and they get jaded, like you say. But if you want to know if you're doing prophecy right, uh, you, you can know you're doing prophecy right if it leads you to worship, not if it leads you to figuring out who's right and who's wrong politically, not if it leads you to, you know, inspecting other churches and what they teach and we do this and they do that. And, and so, no, if you're doing this right, you're going to be like right there with those 24 elders because you're going to worship God when you see how awesome and amazing his plans are and that the kingdoms of this world, which quite frankly now are pretty unruly, pretty gnarly, pretty nasty, uh, the, the, the history of mankind in the last hundred years or so has shown 
that man not is only is not basically good, but but we are always inventing new forms of evil. And we look at this and we go, whoa, you know, uh, you know, we, we used to think that we were the good guys and and these other people are the bad guys, but now it's almost like who is the good guys anymore? Who do you root for anymore? And and, uh, and it's like, wow, this world is going to be messed up until the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And, and this is the exciting part. Right. It, it, it for, again, for those who, who have read their Bible, um, I, before the service, I just went through the minor prophets in your Bible. And I just went, I went to them. I went to Zechariah 14, 9. It, it talks about this, this period. Haggai chapter 2, 21 through 23. Micah chapter 7, chapter 5, 10 through 13. Obadiah 13, 15 through 16. Amos 5, verse 18 through 19. Joel 3, 19 through 13. Hosea 13, verse 4. And, but the re, what I'm saying is I just went through them backwards. I just started in Zechariah and started just flipped to the next one, you know, the next one. And all of the prophets, every one of them's talking about this. Right. They're, this is the hope, is that God's kingdom would come. And, uh, and so here we are. We're finally there. And in heaven, you know, this is something that is so anticipated. And, and, and there's so much, I think, to me as a Christian that help, it gives me some perspective. And that is there's much more that, than, than what I see is going on. Right. Like when Christ died in the book of Ephesians, I was looking it up, but it talks about Ephesians or about when Christ died, he died. And it says all the principalities in the powers saw Christ dying. They saw the redemption of human beings. Right. And that's a mind blower that when Jesus was dying, it wasn't just observed by human beings, but it was observed by a dimension that I can't even see with created beings that I can't even see that, that have a story, you know, in, in, their, in their paradigm, you know, in, in their world. Right. And, you know, God is being vindicated. You, yeah. know, he, you know, Satan's attack on God throughout the Bible is that he is unjust. Right. His grace and mercy on human beings is way too much. Yeah. If he really was a righteous God, if God was really righteous, he'd just wipe them out. You know, like God having mercy on people. And, and, and so there's all this backstory that we have these little gems throughout the scriptures that kind of get opened up to us. Yeah. And here it seems to be finally getting to the end. Yeah. And, and you know, when we hear about the kingdom of God, we, we can get a little thrown by that. Mm -hmm. uh, because some people will say, well, the kingdom of God's already come. Because Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come with the observation, the kingdom of God is within you. And they're right, in a mm -hmm. sense, mm -hmm. in that there is a spiritual dimension to the kingdom of God, wherever the king rules and reigns, in Sean's notes he points this yeah. out, that, uh, that where the king rules and reigns, that's where the kingdom is. And right now, the kingdom of God is among us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says, the kingdom of God isn't eating or drinking. But righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So right now, in a sense, we are in, I, theologians call it the kingdom in a mystery form. 
in, in the sense that it's not visible in a sense to the naked eye. We can see what it does, the, what the kingdom of God does in the lives of the, of the people that are a part of it, but you can't see it. You know, Jesus isn't ruling and reigning on a throne in Jerusalem right now, but we can see the power of God's spirit working within people in three really important ways. Righteousness. We have a right relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us. The, the work of God's Spirit is always going to remind us that we are not made right with God by what we do, but, why, but by what Jesus has done for us. That we have peace with God. In other words, his, by faith we have a right relationship with Him. By His love, we have peace with Him. We know that He's not against us, but He is for us. And then joy. You know, joy is like one of the most like nebulous things, I think, for us to try. It's like trying to grab cotton candy for us sometimes because, you know, we, we experience it by fits and starts. And, you know, people say, well, what's joy? You know, and you hear these different people. I, I was reading Chuck Smith's commentary on the book of Acts today. And, man, he had this beautiful, simple statement about joy. He said, joy is the conscious awareness of God's love. And I thought, I have never heard joy in a Christian sense summed up so simply and so succinctly and so powerful. Because when do we experience the greatest joy in our lives? You know, when an answer to prayer comes, we love the answer to prayer. But the thing that makes it joyful is it's almost like God winking at you. Yeah. Going, I know what's going on with you, kid. I'm close to you. Yeah, I'm close to you. I'm there for you. You know, and so there's that mystery form of the kingdom. But it doesn't stop there. Mm -mm. That mystery form of the kingdom prepares us for when the kingdom actually comes. And, you know, you mentioned all those minor prophet uh, pictures. One of the most intriguing pictures of the reality of what God's kingdom is going to come when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and, and of his Christ is in Revelation chapter 11. I love this description, of, uh, or I should say Isaiah chapter 11, this beautiful picture. I get too excited. Okay. Uh, it, says, <laughs> it says, then there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner for the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Man, I look at that, and that just fires up my imagination to stop and think of what that reality is in fact going to be like when we enter into it, when the kingdom actually comes. And that's what is being celebrated there. 
you know, and boy, you talk about celebration, verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. Boy, does anything jump out at you just in the initial volley of praise that is coming from the 24 elders there? Um, the first thing I thought of was just thanks, uh, just a heart of thanksgiving. And I, I think that's beautiful, and I think it's something that we usually overlook as Christians. I think proper views of prophecy um, bring us to worship uh, properly, and how that looks is a heart of thanksgiving yeah. to God. Yeah. Um, where a lot of people, you know, when they study prophecy, they do turn bitter, sour. They can get again, really jaded. Yeah. And, but uh, like you were talking about, you know, if we study prophecy right, it should point us to a greater revelation of Christ. And that's what this book is, is the revelation. It's the revealing of this kingdom coming. Yeah. In, in and, fact, in a couple of, couple of chapters ahead of us, or, or a few anyway, uh, we're going to see that the apostle John was told by an angel that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess my point is, is like, how well are we at giving thanks? If people in heaven that are before God, you know, see how God moves in his sovereignty and they go, we give thanks. You know, do I do that in my life? Yeah. Even through difficult times. Yeah. And, 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 to... and even focusing in on giving thanks to God, not necessarily even for what he does, although that's a big part of this here, but for who he is. Yeah, I love this is. statement. Mm -hmm. The one who is and who was and who is to come because you've taken your great power and reigned. I just love that picture of the eternal nature of God, that he is the God, not just who was and is to come. That's what we tend to focus on. But the beautiful thing is the first thing they praise God for is what? He is the God who is. He is directly involved in the lives of his people. He's not passive. He's not taking a break. Uh, he is intensely involved with his people because you've taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Well, first of all, we are told here that the Lord is going to rule and reign, and some people ain't going to like it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and let me just back up a titch, and that is on that idea of who was and is and who is to come. That, right. Um, this is something that we went over in chapter one, and this really is another good point of prophecy, is prophecy should point us to who Jesus really is. Um, meaning a, a good study of prophecy, if you're really understanding it well, it should point us to that Jesus is who it says God, Jesus is in Revelation chapter 1. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was, and it is to come the Almighty, Revelation right. chapter 1 and verse 8. If we doubt who that is, we just flip over and it says, uh, I, again, I am the first and the last. I am uh, uh, the one who lives and who is dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to Hades and death. Well, who died and came back to life? Yeah. Yeah, that's Jesus. So prophecy moves us into, into that kind of 
understanding. And I think a good idea of prophecy not only moves us into worship and a good understanding of who Jesus is, a proper understanding of who Jesus is, but it also helps us understand the goodness of God's judgment on sin. It helps us to grab that. Like when we understand prophecy correctly, we understand that God has a plan yeah. and that he's been so merciful uh, and, and that God's wrath, if God were to be just, you know, then... <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and <laughs> you know, here, here we see uh, heaven's point of view yes. about sin. Right. I mean, we swim in sin. We live in sin. Mm-hmm. We are so used to sin that, uh, you know, we're just, we swim in sin like fish swim in water. Mm-hmm. You know, but here you see God's perspective on all of this. And we look at this world and we just assume that this is normal. But from heaven's point of view, it's not normal. And uh, when God restores heaven-centered normality to this world, uh, it's not going to happen without a fight. There's references, again, as we like to remind you here, if you can understand the book of Revelation, 66th book of the Bible, boy, oh boy, you got to understand the previous 65 because there's all kinds of not-so-subtle hints. Hey, back here, this is what this is referring to here. In heaven, the... 24 elders who are worshiping here go back to Psalm 2, this really powerful statement of how God is going to right this world gone wrong. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally his Messiah, and say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Whoa. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss, or literally worship the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed or supremely happy are those who put their trust in him. You know, I I look at this and and, uh, it, it encourages me so much because, you know, you see all of this crazy stuff going on in the world right now, you know, and how wickedness with a capital W is rising to the surface. Um, Jack Hibbs, our good friend from Chino Hills, was uh, asking people to pray because the state of California was uh, about to pass through committee a bill that would allow not just abortion up to uh, full term, but actually allow doctors and the parents involved to have even a six-week window to decide whether they wanted to keep the baby alive or not. You know, when you are getting to that place, and from what I understand, and we'll have to verify this, from what I understand, it was still lacking three votes to pass through committee, but that's, it's that close. It doesn't look like it's going to pass through committee, but Massachusetts has a similar law now. And, and, and just as though we see grace abounding, like in Texas, the heartbeat law that was passed there, and in Alabama, a similar law was passed there, and in Arizona, uh, the, the rights of the, the preborn are being protected. That's great. 
But we're also seeing in the good old US of A, you know, this incredible barbarism that is going on there. And, you know, God has an opinion on this subject. I'm here to tell you. And here we see that God's opinion on how the nations run things is not too keen. And it's like we all face this fork in the road. God's coming. He is going to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity, the psalm says. How are you going to be judged when he comes? You know, are you going to find mercy because you've called upon him in faith? Or are you going to find wrath because you've hardened your heart? True story. Um, a fellow asked a question of us. We didn't get a chance to get to it on the radio today, but I think it's one that uh, bears repeating. You know, I looked at this guy's little uh, uh, by law, by, uh, you know, his, his identification thing, and, you know, he's, he built himself as a skeptic and so forth. And, you know, it started out with uh, a statement about Jesus or the ultimate picture of salvation by grace is the thief on the cross dying for our sins. Then it got into a squabble over the person who said that statement, you know, whether that was a reliable source of information or not. And then this skeptical guy jumps in and goes, well, the problem I have with all of this is here you have a murderer who is forgiven by Jesus. And what if you were in heaven and he murdered some of your relatives and you were forced to spend eternity with someone like that? That sounds horrific to me, torturous. And, you know, I looked at that and, and I, it broke my heart because, you know, I, I just kind of hearken back to Jesus' famous statement, do you not err because you don't know the scriptures or the word of God? You know, first of all, um, this murderer who went to heaven got into heaven because he acknowledged that he was a murderer and he needed forgiveness. And all those who were in heaven, including, you know, I mean, the hypothetical uh, people that aren't going to be there and they're going to be in hell because they were murdered by this guy. And how in the world could that, that happen? I said, well, first of all, um, no one's going to be in heaven or in hell without making a choice one way or the other. Either you receive God's mercy or you don't. Whether this guy murdered you or not is beside the point. The other thing that really hit me in all of that that, that really broke my heart was this. This guy doesn't realize that those who are in heaven are the forgiven. And those who are forgiven perfectly in heaven are going to receive the ability to forgive perfectly while they're in heaven. In fact, they probably look at that thief on the cross and all the damage he did and look at it and go, man, brother, you are a testimony to God's grace. So many people were encouraged by your life because they saw if God could save you, he could save anybody, you know? And so we get so locked in on our own indignation and, and we, we kind of raise our fist in the air at God and say, your ways aren't right. And then another guy followed up and said, well, yeah, and, and what if the two thieves on the cross were the, the two uh, people that Jesus sent to Jerusalem to steal the donkey? And, and that proves that Jesus isn't righteous because he sent those guys down there to steal the donkey. And, 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 and uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's why they got, I go, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> I mean, I, you know? I think I've <laughs> said stuff like that, but I was on like some stuff. Yeah, I think this guy was on some stuff. <laughs> So, you know, all this just to say, 
you know, you want clarity from all this stuff that's going on there, and everybody's got an opinion, and they're more than happy to share them. Yeah. You just look at God's point of view on this. Mm. He's like, you can have your choice. You can have mercy, or you can have justice. But mercy and justice are coming. And for those who've received God's mercy, they're going to be blessed. But those who say, ah, well, I'm a skeptic, and I'm going to tell God, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. Well, uh, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Realize who you're dealing with here. Yeah. You know, uh, before I was a Christian, I used to always make comments like, if God is real, why doesn't he just show up? And, and, and I always said those things really smirkish, you know, just like, man, if your God's real, like, why doesn't he just do this? Yeah, why does he give me $10,000? Right, <laughs> you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And it was, you know, and I'd walk away just going, man, that's, that's so, I'm so wise, man. That's so smart, Bo, that you said that. That was awesome, you know? And, and then, you know, hit, hit, you know, whatever, yeah. you know? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you read the Bible, and it says that there's a problem, that the reason why God is absent is not because God is not real, but it's actually an act of mercy on God to hide himself from us. Yeah. And so throughout the Bible, you'll see this thread throughout it where God hides his face he shows himself in darkness. He uh, the, the tabernacle when it's when it's constructed, it is surrounded by the Levites, the priest, and it says it's surrounded by the priest in the book of Numbers, chapter one, so that the wrath of God, it's like a, there's a buffer. Yeah, it doesn't break out. Doesn't and, break yeah. out on the people. I mean, the, and in the book of Romans, it says we're saved from the wrath of God. And this, this is something where people get, I think, wrong, and sometimes Christians get a little mixed up here, is what are we saved from? Right. What are we ultimately saved from? If you go from the book of Genesis on, why was there angels with swords? Why is there in the tabernacle these, these tapestry, you know, the curtains have cherubim with swords on them, and all this idea of you do not, you cannot, go into the presence of God any old way you want. Right. You will die. And so God in Isaiah chapter 45, God is called the hidden God. He is distant. And so when, when, I, was in, when I was just going, oh, where's God? I didn't know this, but I was proving the existence of God and the God of the Bible by what I was affirming. What, is I, what, I, what I was affirming as an atheist is that God is distant. I don't see God. Where's God? That's what the Bible says, is that God is distant, that there is something that separates me from God. What does Isaiah say? Your sins have separated you from God. What proves the existence of God is my atheism saying that God is distant. Yeah. Is that, that where is God? That is the proof of the Bible. You feel God's distant? You're right. God is distant, because if he's not distant, his wrath would get you. He is light. He dwells in unapproachable light, the Bible says. When light is turned on, darkness is gone. 
God hides himself. Yeah. You know? And, and so what am I saved from? I'm saved from God's wrath. That's what I'm saved from. Yeah. That's what Jesus has saved me from, is the wrath of a holy God. And this is throughout the whole scripture. A holy God on sinful humanity. Right. And, he, and he holds back. Holds back. To give us a chance to get right with him. Amazingly and, patient. And, and again, that invitation is available to whosoever will. Mm -hmm. It is available to anyone who wants to receive it, but it's not going to last forever. Mm -mm. You know, God is patient, he's gracious and loving, but he's nobody's fool. And there is going to come a time where that comes to an end. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You know, if you want a, a summary statement of where we're going next in the book of Revelation, it's right here. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the funniest things to me is when I hear people say, oh, the book of Revelation, you know, who can understand it? It is one of the easiest books of the Bible to follow if you just pay attention to the road signs. Because here we see what the rest of the scripture is going to be about. We're going to see the nations being angry, manifested by the rise of the Antichrist and uh, his uh, time here on earth. That God's wrath is going to come. Revelation 19, Jesus is going to return. The time of the dead, that they should be judged. The culmination of his thousand-year reign and the great white throne judgment. That you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great. You know, what is the ultimate reward? The eternal state. Being with the Lord forever. And destroy those who destroy the earth. I love this because this tells me something. God is uh, an ecologist before the ecology movement began. He takes it personally when we abuse his environment. And, and you know, I've, I've always felt that way. You know, it's always been distressing to me to, like, walk up Tumamoc Mountain here. You know, this wonderful place, and you walk up there, and you're just right by Tucson, but you're out in the wilderness, and deer come walking by and all of this. And you get to the top of Tumamoc, and you look around, and what do you see? Tons tons of plastic water bottles that people have just thrown while they're up there. I'm like, why did you come out here in the middle of nature? Did you just wake up and go, I'm going to make nature a little bit more ugly today. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk up to Mamak and I'm going to just throw this thing away. And I, I can't be bothered just to walk back down and put it in a receptacle that's a quarter mile away. And it always bothered me. And I'm kind of like, man, maybe it's because I'm a neat freak or something like that. But then I realized that God takes very seriously what we do with the stewardship he's given to us mm. on the earth. You know, uh, when Apollo 8 uh, was the first Apollo mission to uh, circle the moon, uh, the astronauts, including James Lovell, who was a believer, it was Christmas Eve when they, they were circling the moon and they sent the first picture of Earthrise coming up over the moon. And they read from the book of Genesis that night. I don't think they could get away with that now. But you talk to those astronauts and they say it's a life-changing spiritual experience to look upon this planet we live upon because it's like, as one of them put it, a beautiful blue marble in a sea of black mystery. You know, when you see it from that point of view, you know, we just take this world for granted. But we live in this perfect, it's been called a privileged planet 
not too hot, not too cold, the atmosphere, everything just so finely tuned to support us. And what do we do with it? We thrash it. And God pays attention. He's very concerned about what we do with the earth. So pick up your water bottles, especially if you hike on Tumamak. If I see you up there and do that, I'm going to throw something at you. Anyway, <laughs> verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. Guess what, Bo? What? There's no such thing as the lost ark. What? It's right here. Oh, there it is. Guess where it is? It's with the Lord. It's in heaven. <laughs> so, you know, people always raise that question, you know, is the, the Ark of the Covenant, this guy, uh, Ron Wyatt said, oh, I found this secret cave and it's underneath the Temple Mount and I alone saw it, didn't take any pictures or anything like that, no proof, but trust me, I saw it. And then uh, someone says, oh, no, it's in this uh, 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 special little church in Ethiopia. And one day out of the year, the head honcho of this church gets to go in and see the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, Steven Spielberg said it was in Tanis that was uh, covered with sand and, and so on. And everybody's wondering about the Ark of the Covenant, but where it is. But they forget what it represents. Why do we see... The temple of God opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant seen in the temple at this particular point. Well, really important things to understand what the ark was all about. The ark in a nutshell was a picture of the goodness of God and the fallenness of man in one pretty much three by four gold embossed box. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we, we see a description of what the ark was all about and the things that it contained. And it's a really interesting description. In verse uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews, uh, it says, Then it, thus indeed, even the first covenant and the ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part of which was the lampstand, the bread, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil that you mentioned, this huge curtain, this picture of this gnarly angel in front of it saying, keep out, this means you. Uh, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Same situation right now, running out of time. But... Understand something, the Ark of the Covenant was really significant in terms of what was in it. Three things that were in it. We are told, first of all, that it had a golden pot with manna in it. It was a picture of God's provision miraculously for the people in the wilderness. Never forget how God miraculously met your need for food. Secondly, it had Aaron's rod that budded. God not only provided spiritual leadership, but miraculously let the people know who those spiritual leaders were. The pretenders and the contenders were absolutely separated from God. These are the people that you listen to. Spiritual leadership was given to them. And the tablets of the covenant, God's word, his instructions, his revelation of himself to man were all in there. And it's this picture of the amazing, gracious, over you know, outreach of God to the people of Israel. But every one of them as well was not just a picture of God's goodness. It was also an indictment of the people of Israel. Because remember, 
after a few months of eating manna, the people moaned and complained and said, oh, if we can only go back to Egypt, we had leeks and garlic and meat and pots, and all we have is this pathetic manna. And I imagine if I was down to the point where I was making manna McMuffins or something like that, I might have a similar response, but it just shows the lack of gratitude to people, you know, of, of human beings. Uh, Aaron's rod that budded. Why did it have to bud, Bo? Because of the rebellion of Korah. Yeah. So family members of, I'm just going through this with numbers, but it had to do with their rebellion again. Looking at God's provision for spiritual leadership, the people said, uh-uh, why can't we be leaders? Yeah. And, and so God, his wrath came against them. So you've rejected God's provision. You've rejected God's people. And finally, you've rejected God's principles because what was the tablet of the Ten Commandments that was in there? It was the rewritten one, because the first one was what? Yeah, broken. Broken. You know? And so when we see the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, what we see is this. Humanity has come face to face with the holiness of God. And you see in that God's graciousness, but you also see his wrath. And we also see, and it's really interesting here, that there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. That's the precise description of what happened in the book of Exodus when God gave the law in the first place. And so here we see that you're going to approach God in one of two ways. You're either going to try to approach God based on what you do for God, your performance for him. Yeah. And you're going to come to that that that. Uh, that sanctuary, that temple, and you're going to go behind the veil, and you're going to see God. And people say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I think, uh, you know, uh, I'll take my chances with God. Oh, my gosh. You don't want to do that because God will show you simultaneously yeah. how good he has been and how bad we really are. Yeah, I was going to say, Nadab and Abihu did that yeah. in the Old Testament. You know, those were the, the sons of Aaron that just said, hey, I'm going to worship God any way I want to worship. And, and they were struck dead on the spot. Right. You know, and, and this is what the Bible is continually saying is that God is holy and that in the Old Testament, the Levites are around the tabernacle as a buffer of his wrath against mankind. And now think about it today, Jesus is that buffer. Yeah. He is the one that has bl blocks us from the wrath to come. Yeah. That's what we're saved from. And and I a lot of people get upset, Scott, that you know, God is, you know, why would God judge? That sounds so wrong. Praise God. I, I thank God that you know, even growing up the way I did, like, you know, uh, you know, just the different things I saw, the violence on the street, going to clubs, seeing th different things, you know. Man, I thank God that reading the Bible, that there was a God who was going to judge the world. Like, to me, that, that was comforting. Like, if God does not have wrath against the stuff in this world, then, then God is just like us. Yeah, and you, and know where, sick. you know where that was driven home to me? We went to, on our trip to Israel, and every time we go, uh, we go to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And they have this uh, exhibit, the tribute to the children who died during the Holocaust. You know, roughly around 1.8 million children 
perished during the Holocaust in the death camps. And you go into this, this room and it's got this huge kind of uh, conical shaped structure to it. And you go in the room and then all the lights go out and it's just like pitch dark. And then you just see a little tiny light appear on the wall uh, across from you. And because it's pitch dark, your eye just focuses in on that little tiny piece of light and it starts to move. And then you see another and another and another and they designed it so 1.3 million lights eventually fill this thing. And if you can walk out of something like that and realize that every one of those tiny lights represented a child who was murdered in the Holocaust. Elie Wiesel in his book Night talked about seeing German soldiers tossing Jewish infants up in the air to use for bayonet practice, live. Just the heartlessness of that. Mm. You know, if you can look at that and say that God doesn't have a right to be wrathful, or God just needs to chill out, or nobody's perfect, or, you know, all the stuff that we tend you don't get out much. You don't face reality. The only way you can hold on to that uh, point of view is by ducking reality, not facing it. Yeah. And, and that's what we see here, you know, and you see the ark, you see the temple or the, the, the dwelling place of God. By the way, this is a temporary arrangement. In the eternal state, there isn't going to be a temple and there isn't going to be an ark because God and the lamb are going to be the temple in this. And we'll, we'll see that in a few more chapters. But the inter other interesting thing, and we'll wrap up with this because there's so much more we could get into, is this is the seventh trumpet. This is the last one. Now, why does all this happen and this declaration take place, this declaration that the kingdom of God has come at the seventh trumpet? You know, the number seven is the number of perfection. We talk about trumpets in Scripture. Trumpets were used to announce things, like when festivals would begin. They were used as a warning. They were used as a call to war. Um, you know, the, the trumpets sounded seven times when the walls of Jericho fell down, we're told in, in the book of Judges, chapter 6. Why this at this point? Well... Here we see God saying from his point of view, from heaven's point of view, it's all over but the shouting. From God's point of view, his kingdom has come. The rest is just running out the clock in a sense. Now, the world looks at this. This is the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. The world looks at this and goes, what do you mean? We've got peace and safety. We've got our antichrist. We, got, you know, we just get rid of those Jews and all these other people who believe in that backwards God that we're going to... God's going to go, yeah, the Lord in heaven laughs. He's going to hold them to scorn at this point. And, and the, the, the thing that I'd like to leave you guys with is this. Here we see the power of positional reality in the Christian life. What do I mean by that? There's a practical reality that we have in our walk with God. You know, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And, 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 you know, we have this experience in life where we walk for the Lord and some days we get it right and some days we get it wrong and three steps forward and two steps back. And, and there's times you're like me that I find myself going, God, why did you even get involved with me in the first place? I just, I feel like such a failed project. But God goes, no, no, no. Wait, there, there, there's a bigger picture here. Because in passages like Romans chapter 8, and verse 28, famous scripture. Uh, many of you could probably quote it. 
We know that God works all things together for good, for those who love him, are called according to his purpose. And then he tells us what his purpose is. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. But then it makes this radical statement. It says, those whom he foreknew, he, these he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. In fact, in the Greek, that's the aorist tense. It means over and completed in the past. Not something that's an ongoing work. I live, you live, we all live in, not a yellow submarine, but we all live in this reality that we're in right now, where we're bound by time, where we don't see the finish of it all. But the one who is and was and is to come sees the end of the picture. There's that beautiful statement we find in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5, that we have been raised up and made to sit with Christ in heavenly places. Just as in this picture of the book of Revelation, looking forward to the culmination in, in the outflow of the book, the outflow of time, boy, there's still things that have to happen. The nation's going to have to get angry. God's wrath's going to have to come. Uh, the time of the dead are going to have to be judged and so on. All these things, all these hurdles we're going to get through on the horizontal. But from the heavenly, God says, already done. Already done. Don't have to worry about it. No one's going to slip through the cracks. No one's going to fall short. Already done. You're already home. And I love that. Because, yeah, I do want to make right decisions in my walk with God. And yeah, I do want to grow closer to Christ. But I have to realize, I can't add a single thing to what put me into that positional righteousness that I have with God. And because he's so good to me, because he's made me positionally righteous, I'm like, man, I just want my life to kind of live up to that. The whole Christian life is narrowing that gap to who we are going to be when we're in heaven. We're perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and where we are right now. So if that's where we're going as far as our destiny goes, might as well get on with it, don't you think? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much with this beautiful picture that you paint for us here in uh, Revelation chapter 11, that you see things from a heavenly point of view and just the beauty of the fact that this final seventh trumpet, this, this picture of completion tells us that just as you saw your work completed, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ forever. So you look upon us and you see that work completed in us I don't see that, Lord. I'm still far too stuck in the muck and the goo and the mire of this world sometimes to see that. But you see it, and I trust you for that. And I trust you, Lord, that what you start in our lives, uh, you're going to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. So, Father, help us to understand that. We don't fight for victory in the Christian life. We fight from victory. We don't uh, run this race hoping that somehow we'll make it to heaven. As far as you're concerned, it's already made. And Father, I pray that having that beautiful perspective of your love and your commitment to us and how you do all things well, including taking care of those who need a dose of your wrath. We don't have to be wrathful. You'll take care of that. Uh, all we have to do is hold on to you with both hands and experience your wonderful love and know that the day of the seventh trumpet is nearer now than we first believed. 
Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.